0: A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajim Bismillah Ar-Rahman rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa Sallallahu Ala Sayyidina Muhammadin Wa Alihi At-Tayyibin at Allahumma Salli Ala Muhammadu Ala Muhammad My respected brothers and sisters Assalamu Alaikum Wa Rahmatullahi Wa Barakatuh I welcome you all to this course on the biography of the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa He is the greatest messenger of God, the greatest creation of the Almighty God, the final and seal of all prophets and messengers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose him to deliver to us his final message, the religion of Islam. Every human being is indebted to the contributions of this great man. Today we will provide an introduction to the biography of the Prophet, to reconstruct the biography of the Prophet. And then in following courses, we will delve into the details of the life of the Prophet, from his birth all the way to his final days, inshaAllah. He is indeed the greatest messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you see what some non-Muslims have said about the Prophet, that is also an indication that the Prophet left an everlasting impact on this world. I want to share with you some quotes about the Prophet. One of the historians by the name of Michael Hart, he has a book in which he ranks the 100 most influential people in history. Now this man is not Muslim. In fact, he's critical of Islam. Well, that's interesting. Even though he talks about the Prophet, but he is critical of Islam. Yet, he confesses that the most influential person in history is the Holy Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. So in his list of the 100 most influential people in his ranking, who do you think he lists first? Number one on his list. He's Christian. So you would anticipate that he would list Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, right? But who does he list? He lists the Prophet, peace be upon him, as the most influential person in history. Now when he was criticized, you know, why did you choose him to be the first person on the list? This is what he says, and I'll read you his exact quote. He says, my choice of Muhammad to lead the list of the world's most influential persons may surprise some readers and may be questioned by others. But he was the only man in history who was supremely successful in both the religious and the secular levels. Both when it came to his religion and both when it came to politics, the economy, running and managing a society the most successful man in history. And then he mentions of humble origins, Muhammad founded and promulgated one of the world's great religions, even though he had such a humble origin, and and became an immensely effective political leader. Today, 13 centuries after his death, his influence is still powerful and pervasive. Then he mentions the majority Of the persons in this book, meaning those hundred that he speaks about and he ranks in his book. He says the majority of them had the advantage of being born and raised in centers of civilization. Highly cultured or politically pivotal nations. Muhammad however was born in the year 570 in the city of Mecca in southern Arabia. At that time a backward area of the world. So the most influential person in history is emerging from which region? Most backward. From one of the most backward regions in the world. Far from the center of trade, art and learning. Orphaned at age six. He was reared in modest surroundings. Orphaned from his mother. Otherwise he never met his father because his father, as we will see, passed away when his mother was pregnant with him reared in modest surroundings. And Islamic traditions tell us that the Prophet never even practiced reading and writing. So a man of such modest origins in a backward society, who would never learned to read or write, became the most influential figure in history. What does that tell you about the greatness of this man? Let's take the words of Gandhi. You all know who Gandhi is, the great Indian revolutionary statesman and thinker. He mentions an important point, especially today when many non-Muslims and Westerners believe that Islam spread by the sword, right? That the Prophet became victorious through the sword. What does Gandhi say? The Gandhi, in a periodical called Young India in 1928, this is what he writes. He says, I became more than ever convinced after reading about the life of the Prophet, that it was not the sword that won a place for Islam in those days in the scheme of life. It wasn't the sword. What was it? It was the rigid simplicity, the utter self-effacement of the Prophet, the scrupulous regard for his pledges, his intense devotion to his friends and followers, his intrepidity, his, his fearlessness... His absolute trust in God and in his own mission. These and not the sword carried everything before them and surmounted every trouble. So here he is witnessing that it was not the sword. Edward Gibbon, the great British historian, what does he say? He says the greatest success of Muhammad's life was effected by sheer moral force without the stroke of a sword. Here you have a famous British historian who's saying that the success of the Prophet was not with the strike of a sword. It was with what? His sheer moral force. And hence, what does the Quran say? And you are of utmost and the highest character. It's so the akhlaq of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that he was able to offer these contributions. Now, it is truly a miracle when you examine the Prophet's life within such a short period of time, in a period of 23 years, how this man transformed that society and left an everlasting impact on humanity. This great man, however, the greatest man God has ever created, historically has been oppressed until this very day. By who? Who are the ones who have most oppressed the Prophet? Is it the non-Muslims? Is it the Christians, the Jews, the Hindus, the Burmese? Who is it? The Muslims. The Muslims are the most people who have committed acts of injustice against the name of the Holy Prophet And this is not something recent that we see in our modern time. This existed right after the Prophet, even in his own life, yes, but especially after his life. Those rulers who came after the Prophet, especially the Umayyad dynasty. You know, when we talk about Islamophobia and these attacks on the religion of Islam and the name of the Prophet, the Umayyads started it, not these Western countries. Long before there was a West and there was Western civilization, it was so-called Muslims' who defamed the Prophet, who had a problem with the name of Muhammad. Muawiyah, Yazid his son. They had a problem with the name of the Prophet. They did not even believe in the message of the Prophet. You know Yazid in that incident where he was in the presence of Lady Zaynab, what did he read? What did he say? When he was seeing the head of Imam al-Hussein, Hussain, and he was striking it you know, with a stick. What did he say? He revealed the true intentions of the Bani Umayyad. I wish my ancestors at Badr. Who are his ancestors at Badr? The Mushrikeen, the leaders of the pagans. Because at Badr, the Mushrikeen were defeated, the pagans, and the Muslims gained victory. So he's like, I wish my ancestors who got defeated at Badr, the Battle of Badr during the Prophet's time. I wish they were here today to see how I took revenge from the family of the Prophet. This is a man who has respect for the Prophet, who says these lines. And then what does he say? لَعِبَتْ <laughs> Hashim is the grandfather of the Prophet. Bani Hashim, is the family of the Prophet. It's like the family of the Prophet, they played around. They wanted kingdom and power. There was no revelation, it's all a game. Who's saying this? Yazid son of Muawiyah, who at the time, in the eyes of many simple Muslims, he was the Khalifa of the Prophet. So we see there was an active effort after the Prophet to defame him. And when we examine the biography of the Prophet, we have to be aware of this tragic event that happened after the Prophet. Until today, until today, in our Muslim books from other schools of thought, we see traces of that defamation. Look at our Hadith books from other schools of thought. Books like Bukhari even, yes, which is considered the most authentic source for other schools of thought. You'd be shocked at what you would find in some of these books of history, books of seerah, books of biography, books of hadith. You know they start when the prophet was young and they tell you the story how his heart was taken out by a devil. He was possessed. Sometimes he would have his wife Aisha ride on his back so she can go and see a game, a match. This is the greatest messenger of God. Imagine him coming out. Carrying his wife you know, on his back, carrying her like a baby, and she's watching a match. Who does this? These were efforts to defame the Prophet. You have hadiths you know, in these hadith books that say the Prophet would stand in a public area and he would, God forbid, urinate. This is not the Prophet that we follow. But this is what Bani Umayyah did to defame the Prophet. That he was under a spell. There's a hadith in Bukhari that someone successfully put a spell on the Prophet, under the spell of the magic. And you have a number of such traditions. So we know that we have a problem when it comes to the history of the Prophet. We have some hadiths you know, in these books that say the Prophet forgot some verses in Surah Al-Najm and he added his own verse because the shaitan fooled him. Instead of thinking that this is Jibrail giving me, the revelation, uh, instead of knowing that Shaitan, you know, was giving him the revelation, he thought it was Jibrail, And so he added a verse in the Qur'an, then Jibrail came down, he rebuked him, and he had to apologize. What kind of a prophet is this? And these hadiths still exist in our books? Is this respect for the Holy Prophet Or when you look at some historical events like the issue of Bani Qurayza, that the Prophet massacred nine hundred and fifty Jews. Is this accurate or no? Yes, sister? But
1: then in Surah Najm itself in the t- second and the third ayah it says that he doesn't speak unless
0: That same surah and Najm tells us Wamayamti 'an Hawa in Illa Wahyun Yuha. Anything the Prophet says is revelation from Allah. Yet you still find such hadiths in books. So, the first group that oppressed the Prophet in history was who? Muslims, who claimed to be followers of the Prophet. And this is the tragedy that we have. Now, why did Bani Umayyah and some of these people defame the Prophet in this way? What was their reason? Did they have an agenda? There were several reasons. So, that's not true
1: that he killed Jews? 902?
0: No, we will examine this in his biography. We will examine the issue, the massacre of Bani Qurayza in depth. And it's a historical fabrication that the Prophet killed 950 Jews. And we'll examine the proofs, why this is wrong. So the biography that we have today is not the real biography of the Prophet. We need to analyze it. We need to intellectually dissect the Prophet's life and see what is found in some of these books. Is this accurate or is this a misrepresentation of the Prophet's life? So the book Salman Rushdie wrote is about those... Satanic verses. Yes, that's the title of his book. What he mentions in some of the things that he... It's a devious book, by the way. But some of the things that he mentions in that book, they're found in Muslim books. And that's the problem. They
1: are?
0: Yes. They're found in Muslim books. And as Muslims, as true followers... Of the Holy Prophet, we have to purify his biography from this nonsense, from this defamation. So, what was the agenda of Bani Umayyah? Why did they forge such fabrications and such hadiths?
1: Because of the weather.
0: There were a number of reasons. Number one, you will find that Yazid and Muawiyah they harbored this resentment towards the Prophet. Uh, because the Prophet he brought this religion and many of their forefathers were killed, you know, at Badr and some of these other events. So they realized that in Mecca we had power as pagans, we controlled society. Now this man came and he changed the social fabric and he brought this new religion and there's, new, uh, there's a new power structure. So they had this resentment towards the Prophet. That's number one. Number two, they wanted to justify their own position because if the Prophet is clearly infallible and he never makes a mistake and you're sitting in his seat representing the Prophet, people will tell you, wait a minute, you Yazid, you Muawiyah, you other Caliphs, you're making all these mistakes, you're coming with all these sins, how are you qualified to represent the Prophet? What was their justification? The Prophet himself used to make mistakes sometimes so if my Prophet makes mistakes I can make mistakes I can sit in his seat and represent him it was an effort to justify their own wrong yes
1: when they mention these they do point out that before Islam even though it's, it's it's known that he was like infallible they would try to authenticate or say that he did things like drink wine or things that we know that he wouldn't do before.
0: And and these are efforts to justify them because see What's special about Imam Ali when it comes to the caliphs? He
1: was
0: the one. Imam Ali was the only one. From day one, he never committed any vice. All the others were pagans. They worshipped the idols. They would drink. They would do all these vices. So when you would tell them that, they're like, well, the Prophet, the same thing. Before his birthday, before he became officially a messenger, he would do these things. See, it's all an effort to justify their wrong and to make themselves qualified. They're like, if the Prophet whom God chose had such a history, we can have a similar history. So it was really an effort to justify their own wrong. The Bani Umayyah, one reason why they forged these you know, uh, uh, fake hadiths about the Prophet, and they would pay some companions to forge them, is to justify their own position. Abu Huraira, Abu for example, Um, he was definitely employed by the governments of his time to fabricate some hadiths. Another reason that we find here, and this is a very important reason, and this is a common theme when it comes to all of our sciences, science of hadith, science of Islamic law. After the Holy Prophet those who came to power, they imposed a ban on the recording of the hadith. For about 100 years, until the time of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, there was a ban on recording the hadith. No one was allowed to record the hadith. In fact, they would punish the one who would write the hadith and document it. The first and second caliphs after the Prophet, according to Sunni sources, they gathered the hadith of the Prophet and they burned it. Why? For what purpose? Their excuse... Their justification was that we don't want people to be busy with hadith and forget the Quran and confuse the two. Let people focus on the Quran, so let's prevent and prohibit the people from recording the hadith. That was their excuse. Now for a hundred years you had a gap, nothing was really being recorded except some personal individual minor efforts. Now those people who came later to document the Prophet's life, to write his biography, they had no sources. They could only depend on what? On oral transmissions. The first book of Seerah that we have by Ibn Ishaq, we'll discuss that shortly, came about 80 years after the Prophet. 80 years. The first books of Seerah really came about 80 years after the Prophet. What happened in these 80 years? They had no concrete hadiths to refer to, historical evidence. You would go and just ask people, you know, the progeny of the Sahaba, the children of the Sahaba, you know, what did you hear from your parents? It was all orally transmitted. And that's, that opened the door for all these fabrications, because when you don't have something documented on paper, you could easily change it, give it a different version, right? With oral transmission, you have a lot of changes. Have you ever heard of Chinese whispers? Mm-hmm. Right? Or they call it the game of telephone here. You know, in, in one room, even if you're, you don't want to just play, you really want to be accurate. And this happens to you. You say something to your friend, your friend says it to someone else, when it comes back to you, you're like, oh my God, you know, you have you've guys changed what I said to you. That's not what I said. Well, imagine in 80 years, you're relying on oral transmission, how many changes happened to that? And this created a challenge for those who tried to write the biography of the Prophet, because you didn't have anything that was written or documented. So these were some reasons why until today we have fabrications in the life of the Prophet, and the biography of the Prophet. Bani Umayyah and their evil agenda, And number two, you had a gap. With this ban on the hadith, which lasted for a century. After a century was this ban lifted and the people finally were able to write the hadiths. But after a century, imagine how much you lost, how many details you lost. So that tells us that those early works on biography, there's automatically an issue with them. We can't take them... You know, at face value and accept everything in them. We have to examine them, analyze them. Yes, sister.
1: So, when you talk about Bani Umayyah, is it that uh, what I have heard is that Bani Hashim and Bani Umayyah were neck to neck and uh, like or There
0: was a historical rivalry between them, yes. So,
1: was that one of the reasons too?
0: Yes, absolutely. In Arabian society, the Bani Umayyah and Bani Hashim, they were cousins. And there's a long story to it, how the rivalry started, but the Bani Hashim were, were always just and upright. Bani Umayyah, because of their jealousy, because Bani Hashim, the family of the Prophet, they had a very high social status in Mecca. The Bani Umayyah despised them for that.
1: So could we say that uh, this uh, despise was, was yes, the
0: jealousy, yes, the jealousy, yes, absolutely. It was passed down. This was one factor, definitely. Uh, It was the jealousy from the Ahlul Bayt, from the Prophet, from Imam Ali Alayhi Salaam. You know, one of the main reasons why many of those companions did not accept the leadership of Imam Ali was this jealousy. So yes, it was passed down from generation to another. And then you had these different factors that we also mentioned.
1: Yes, brother. Sayyid, what about other things as in how most of the Arabs were pagans and they would worship now They say that also like Mani Hashim used to do the same thing but this doesn't seem like logical though how they would describe how the Prophet would be brought up one way and the rest of his family another. Like how
0: do they use this against... We will discuss that in our next course when we briefly talk about the Prophet's fathers and grandfathers. Were they believers in God or were they idol worshippers? Because many Muslims until today believe that they were idol worshippers, right? We will discuss that, inshallah. So we see that we have these challenges when it came uh, to the life of the Prophet and the biography. At the same time, during these decades, that 100 years, you had the influence of other religions. For example, you had the Jewish influence, Ka'b al-Ahbar. Ka'b al-Ahbar was originally a Jewish man. Who had a lot of you know knowledge of the Bible, of the of the Old Testament, and he would spread his own hadiths, his own stories. And interestingly, while the average Muslim was banned from recording and discussing the hadith, Ka'abul Akbar had his freedom. Especially the second Khalifa, he gave him so much freedom to you know spread his stories and to spread his ideas in Muslim society. This had a very negative impact on how Muslims came to see the Holy Prophet sallallahu Abdullah ibn Salam was another man of Jewish origins who would spread hadiths that would actually defame the prophets of God and including the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi And you find these hadiths until today, you find them in our books. Could you repeat the names, please? Kaabil Ahbar and Abdullah Ibn Salam are just two examples. They were given the freedom to disseminate their views and spread their teachings. Thank you. So when you ban the Hadith and these people have their freedom and Bani Umayyah are working on their own agenda, what do you expect, really? Do you expect such a pure seerah and biography of the Holy Prophet sallallahu And hence, honestly, until this very day, we don't have an accurate biography of the Prophet. We don't. Something that is so comprehensive and accurate that we can fully trust, we don't have because of these circumstances. Nonetheless, with all these challenges, the most documented personality in history is the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. A man said 14 centuries ago, Everything about him was documented. How he would walk, how he would speak, how he would give a sermon, how he would live amongst his companions, him going to war, him making peace treaties. Really no figure in history in that era was as documented as the Holy Prophet He's the most documented figure in history and that's truly amazing. You know, one of the sermons of the Prophet Khutbat al-Ghadir, he gave a sermon before appointing Imam Ali alayhi salam. It was a one hour sermon, one hour and probably based on my research the longest sermon the Prophet ever gave. One hour under the hot sun in Ghadir Khum. Every word of it is documented. Do you have something similar to that where a figure who lived 1,400 years ago, gave a speech and every word of it was preserved. This is one of the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that so many details about the Prophet's life survived until today. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala really blessed this Muslim ummah by giving us so much information about the Prophet's life. Now when we talk about the biography of the Prophet, while there were issues and challenges yet we can reconstruct the prophet's life and biography in several ways first of all we have the imams of ahl al-bayt peace be upon them who would give us a lot of details about the prophet's life yes we don't have a shi'a biography why because at that time the shi'a were heavily persecuted they did not have the freedom to go and write about the Prophet's life. They were monitored and persecuted by the governments. So, really, you don't have a Shia Seerah book, a Shia biography book from those times. They were not given that opportunity. Secondly, you really needed a lot of resources because you had to go travel, gather the clues, find documents. This required a lot of money and effort. And that's why you will find the major historians who wrote the biography of the Prophet, they were employed by who? By the governments of their time. Like Harun al-Rashid al-Abbasi, he was not Rashid, he was not guided. Harun al-Abbasi, this Abbasid caliph, he would employ historians, some of them have written the biography for us, he would give them the money and the support, and he would tell them, write the biography of the Prophet, of course, according to their own perspective. But for the followers of Ahl al-Bayt, the governments would persecute them. And that's why you don't have a full Shia biography of the Prophet, because the Shias were heavily persecuted. So what we have is like a jigsaw puzzle. We have to fill in the pieces. We examine these books of Seerah that we have. Anything that's compatible with the Quran, with the Ahadith of Ahlul Bayt, with the character of the Prophet, we accept. Because the Prophet, he himself says, In a number of hadiths, he says, whatever you hear about me, if it's compatible with the book of God, accept it. If it's not, then reject it. And he warned the Prophet, peace be upon him, in our hadith books, even the Sunni hadith books, there are hadiths that say, the Prophet warned, he forewarned, that after me so many liars will come. تَكْثِرُ عَلَيَّ الْكَذَّابَ So many liars will come. And they will forge hadiths, so be careful. Ibn Abbas, he has an interesting hadith, he says, if you ever hear me talking about the Prophet and giving you details, if you find that it contradicts the principles of the Qur'an, and it's something that people find unacceptable, then know that I am lying. In other words, he's telling us that there's nothing about the Prophet's life that's immoral, that's unacceptable to society. So if you find a hadith that is difficult for society to accept, it's defaming the Prophet, it's contradicting the principles of Quran, automatically know that what? This is a false hadith. So the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, peace be upon them, they really contributed to giving us a picture of the Prophet's life. But we have to fill in the pieces. It's a a big puzzle. We have to solve the puzzle. We have to look at every segment of the Prophet's life. First see what exists in these biographies. And then we have to see, is this contradictory or not? Does Does this fit with the Quran or not? Does this fit with the personality of the Prophet or not. That gives us a better understanding of the Prophet's life. Now what are the major works of Seerah that we have today? By far the most famous source of biography is Ibn Ishaq. But that wasn't the first one. Before him, the first person who formally put together a biography for the Prophet, who compiled a biography, was a man by the name of Urwa ibn Zubair ibn al awam the famous Zubair. This is his son, the Prophet's cousin, so he's a distant relative to the Prophet. Now he died in the year 92 after the Hijrah, so we're talking about a century after the Prophet, almost a century. This was the first work of biography of Seerah on the Prophet's life. Now his work did not survive in history. We know that he authored a biography, but it got lost in history. Today we cannot find his book, we don't have access to it. But this was the earliest source on the Prophet's life. We had books of hadith that talk about some aspects of the Prophet's life, but this was an effort solely to give us an idea of the Prophet's life. It was a work of biography. So this is one work. Another more important source is Ibn Ishaq. Whenever you examine the Prophet's life, the history of the Prophet, the seerah and the biography, the two most famous names are who? Ibn Ishaq and who? Ibn Hisham. Now Ibn Ishaq, he came about eight decades after the Prophet. He lived in the city of Medina. He had this passion to record everything about the Prophet's life. He would go to the people of Medina, he would ask them, what did you hear from your parents about the Prophet? Those who lived with the Prophet. Give me details. He would even travel to various cities to interview people who had met the Prophet or their parents had met the Prophet to learn about the Prophet's life. And he compiled a book that was about 15 big volumes at the time. This was, you know, at the time a very, very big effort. So Ibn Ishaq is the first one who really compiled a comprehensive seerah and biography on the Prophet's life. Yes? So,
1: Sayyid, is this kind of like what happened with the final uh, Imam when he goes into the grave? how many things become lost because there's nobody there to like record it? This is one of...
0: When the Imam alayhi salam went into غيبة, before he went into Ghaiba, we already had hadith books. The previous Imams of Ahlul Bayt, whatever we needed to know, they gave it to us. Some things did get lost in history, but the most important aspects of Islamic knowledge were passed down to us. For example, in the book of Kafi. So. This is different with the challenge that we see after the Prophet's life because there was a ban on the recording of the Hadith. So Ibn Ishaq, he compiled this huge work. But did it survive in history? No, it didn't. Why? Because it was 10 to 15 volumes. Remember, at the time, there was no paper that was easily accessible and you couldn't just make copies of it. You had to have a scribe who would sit there and write every word and every sentence and carrying that was just burdensome. So it was something that the average person would not have access to. What happened is, one of his indirect students who is Ibn Hisham. Now Ibn Ishaq, what year did he pass away? He died in the year 150 Hijra. He was born around the year 85. So he was born about eight decades after the Prophet. He lived for about 70 years, until the year 150 after the Hijrah. So one and a half centuries after the Prophet. Now there was a man by the name of Ibn Hisham. Ibn Hisham was a famous historian. What he did, he took the seerah of Ibn Ishaq and he summarized it. And the seerah of Ibn Ishaq that we have today is not the original Seerah that he compiled, the 10 to 15 volumes. That got lost in history. What survived until today? The work of Ibn Hisham. Ibn Hisham took this big book. He realized it's too big. It's full of details. He summarized it for us. He deleted a lot of details. He made some additions here and there. So the book of Seerah that we have from Ibn Ishaq was actually edited by Ibn Hisham. So the two biggest names in the biography of the Prophet, the seal of the Prophet, are Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham. But we don't have the actual work of Ibn Ishaq. What survived is the edition of who? Of Ibn Hisham. What's the title of his book? Or his volumes? Who? Ibn Ishaq? Ibn Hisham. So he summarized the he summarized the seerah of the Holy Prophet from... It's attributed to Ibn Hisham, but it's really for Ibn Ishaq. So it's just the seerah of the Prophet Yeah, yeah, we have it today. Ibn Hisham's seerah, it survives. It's just the seerah of the Prophet So he is the one who summarized to us the book of Ibn Ishaq. Now I don't know what was the original title of the book of Ibn Ishaq, because it did not really survive in history. But Ibn Hisham, he passed it to us. So today, if you want to find this book, it's just, you know, uh, called Sirat Ibn Hisham. That's the short for it. If you're looking for it online, or if you want to buy it, and it's in Arabic, of course, some parts of it have been, or all of it, I think, has been translated into English. So if you can just look up Sirat Ibn Hisham, you will find the book. And it's also called Sirat Ibn Ishaq as well, because it's the same. He just summarized it and he edited it for us. Now Ibn Hisham, he died in the year 218. So we're talking about two centuries after the Prophet. Now there were other attempts. So there were seven other seerahs on the Prophet's life, but they never made it in history. They also got lost in history. Now the third, more fam- the third most famous seerah is one that was offered by Ibn Sa'd in his book, al tabaqat Al-Kubra. They call it Tabaqat ibn Sa'd. Or you can just say for short Sirat ibn Sa'd, the biography of ibn Sa'd. Ibn Sa'd died in the year 230 after Hijrah. So this is also one of the important works on the Prophet's life. And then you have a more recent one by the name of At-Tabari. He has a book on the history of kings and rulers. And in that he also analyzes a lot of the Prophet's biography, and you'll find many uh, scholars or speakers referring to Tabaqat ibn Sa'd in speaking about the Prophet's life. He died in the year 923, so about 500 years ago. So these are the main works of biography on the Prophet's life. So the first one who really compiled something comprehensive was Ibn Ishaq, but it did not survive through history. What Survived was the summary of Ibn Hisham, so the most important book of Sirah that we have today is the book by Ibn Hisham called Sirat Ibn Hisham. So this is the bi- the uh, biography of the Prophet that we have. Are any of these
1: from uh, all of these are Sunnah?
0: Okay, that's a good question. Now it is commonly known that they are of the ahl Sunnah. However. Ibn Ishaq, if you go to the literalist uh, Sunnis, like the Hanbalis, the Wahhabis, they don't like Ibn Ishaq and his biography. Ahmed ibn Hanbal, the leader of the Hanbali school of thought, he had an issue with a lot of things that Ibn Ishaq would narrate. Some of them were valid, some of his observations, but some of them, no. And they accused him of being a Shia. So they accused Ibn Ishaq of being Shia. Why? For two reasons. The primary reason is because sometimes he mentions some details about some of those khulafa, the early caliphs, that they did not like. They're like, wait a minute, you're exposing these caliphs. Where did you get this from? Since they did not like that, they rejected it and they accused him of being a Shia. Al-Waqidi was another historian who wrote biographies of the Prophet. Harun al-Abbasi employed al-Waqidi. Also because they had an issue of some of, with the, some of the things he would write, they accused him of, of being a Shia. Now we really don't know what the beliefs of Ibn Ishaq were. He is compared to some others who were extreme towards al bayt He was definitely moderate. He was not anti-Shia. Now whether he was Shia or not, that's subject to interpretation. Uh, some people might consider him close to the Shi'as. some people just consider him to be a Sunni, but not an extreme Sunni. He was a moderate Sunni, but some have accused him throughout history of being a Sunni
1: one
0: of that he so one of them was that he exposed some of the caliphs the other he would document some of the virtues of Imam Ali that they didn't like so, so do they have any equivalent in They really don't have an equivalent. What they did is they looked at Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, these hadith books, and they tried uh, to give a picture of the Prophet's life based on the hadiths in their books. So it's nothing comprehensive. They're forced, you know, at the end of the day to accept some of Ibn Ishaq's works. Because the hadith books are not biographies. They're about laws, rulings, Different events and there's a lot of biography in them like Bukhari does have some biography but it's not a book of biography it's a hadith book it's a, it's a book of what the Prophet said, what he taught what he preached but not necessarily his life in chronological order. Ibn Ishaq what he did with his biography he examined the life of the Prophet in a chronological order So um, the edited version of
1: by- is it so having the
0: virtues of the and the It does have some of it. Um, he deleted some of them, of course. Due to Maybe either due to Taqiyah or due to, you know, um, he wanted to summarize it and be brief about it. But yes, there were some things that were deleted. And Taqiyah is definitely one of the reasons.
1: Al Waqidi?
0: Al Waqidi, some also considered him to be Shia. He was uh, in the 2nd to the 3rd centuries, so during the time of Al-Imam Al-Sadiq and Al-Imam Al-Kadhim. He was employed by Harun Al-Abbasi to write the seerah of the Prophet. Now his work, um, the way that he wrote it did not survive. Uh, Some parts of it through his students did survive. So we do have some instances and accounts from the work of Waqidi. But you'll find that those strict Sunnis, let's say, they don't accept it because they consider them to be a Shia. A so what do you guys rely your
1: sources
0: on? Okay, exactly. So what are our sources? So number one, we look at these biographies like Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham. We examine them. If there are details in them that fit the Qur'an, they fit the character of the Prophet that we know, his morality, we accept them, that's fine, but anything dubious, we do research. We go in the Ahadith of Ahlul Bayt, is there any clues, are there any clues in the narrations of Ahlul Bayt about this incident? Did it really happen the way you know, that Ibn Hisham narrates it or some of these historians narrate it or not? So that's why it's a challenge for us because we have to put the pieces together. So each event we analyze it, is there any, are there any contradictions in there? Because when you examine some of these events, even narrated by Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham, there are many contradictions in them. If you simply analyze them, you realize there are contradictions in them. Like this, the massacre of Bani Qurayza. The way Ibn Ishaq narrates it, it's full of contradictions. We can't accept it. So we have to use the power of reason, we have to use historical ana- analysis to give a better picture. Now today, today there are Shia biography books, today. But we don't have any early sources. What we have is basically the Quran, the verses of the Quran, the Tafsir, the Ahadith of al-Bayt, and these Seerah books. You put them all together and you get a biography book. The most comprehensive biography book that we have today is As-Sahih min Seerah al-Nabi. It's 35 volumes by a, by a sayyid Ja'far al-Amili. It's 35 volu- volumes on the life of the Prophet. So this is what he does in this book. And a lot of what we will discuss will be based on this book. It's in Arabic. As-Sahih min nabi sallallahu alayhi So what's authentic from the Seerah of the Prophet? Um, this was let- written in the last decade. This is recent. He's still alive. The author is still alive. Who's the author? Say Ja'far al-Amili. He lives in Lebanon. Sayyid Ja'far Murtala al-Amiri, yes. He's also known as a Sayyid Ja'far Ah, No, this has not been translated into English. It should be, because it's a great work. It's full of sources, references. So he starts from day one, he analyzes the Prophet's life. What does Ibn Ishaq say? What does Ibn Hisham say? The Quran, the Ahadith of Ahlul Bayt. And he gives us, an analysis about that event and that stage in the Prophet's life. So this is the most comprehensive work that we have. We have some small biographies here and there, but this is 35 volumes, so it's huge. And there's a lot of analysis in it. So this is an overview of the biographies that we have on the Prophet's life. Now, briefly, before next week we enter into the Prophet's life, and we examine the details from birth until he became a messenger and afterwards, let's briefly just examine the state of the Arabian Peninsula before the Prophet was born. Arabia was this isolated region primarily because of its geography. It's a desert, there is no permanent river there. Like in Egypt you have the Nile, in Iraq you have the Tigris or Euphrates. There were civilizations in Egypt because of the river. There were civilizations in Babylon, Iraq, because of the rivers. But not in the Arabian Peninsula. Why? Because most of the people were nomads. Rainfall was scarce. You did not have really any rivers. It's a very uh, rugged terrain, mountains and stones and rocks. So it's difficult to build a city. Mecca was the most important city. But around Mecca, all you had was Bedouins and nomads who would always change their location, going from one place to another place, just, you know, foraging for food and looking for water. So because they were isolated, they were relatively safe from the influences of the major empires of the time. What were the two major empires of the time? The Roman civilization or empire and the Persian empire. The Persian and the Roman empires, they're like these Arabs in their backward societies in the desert. There's no civilization there, no big cities. We don't care about them. We're not interested in them. And hence, the Arabs were largely isolated. They were not even influenced by their beliefs. They had their own pagan practices, and the Persians were not interested. in in spreading their religion there. The Romans were not interested in them. Nobody was interested in them. And that's why they they were not really aware of all these ideas and beliefs out there. They just had their basic beliefs and ideas. So this was the state of the Arabian Peninsula. And by the way, many people, like some Jews, they came to the Arabian Peninsula fleeing the persecution of the Roman Empire because the romans were christians they persecuted the jews some of them had to flee palestine and the holy lands some of them settled where in yathrib around the city of medina why did they choose medina to settle there so yes they came to arabia because arabia was safe for them from those empires who would persecute them and kill them but why specifically medina does anyone know mentioned
1: in their books that the prophet would come
0: It was mentioned in the Torah that the final messenger of God would emerge from the mountains of Medina. That's why they came and settled there. And the Quran in one verse tells us that whenever the Jews around Medina, they would be attacked, persecuted, the Arab pagans would give them a hard time, what would they say? They would say, have patience, have patience. The Prophet will come, we're waiting for him, and we'll gain victory. That gave them patience. That's why the Qur'an says they knew the Messenger like they knew their own fathers. Because all the descriptions of the Prophet were mentioned in the Torah. Their own sons, or their fathers. Their sons or their fathers. They knew the Prophet very well. But what happened? When the Prophet came to Medina, as we shall see in the Prophet's life, for two reasons they rejected him. Number one, they thought that the final messenger of God would be from their lineage, from the lineage of Prophet Ashaq. He would be from that line. Once they realized he's an Arab, from the line of Ismail, they're like, no, 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 we're not going to follow him. That's number one. Number two, The Jews, they were influential in Medina. The economy was in their hands. They were prominent. When the Prophet came to Medina and people started surrounding the Prophet and he became important, he took the spotlight from them and the spotlight became on him. They didn't like that either. So for these two primary reasons, they started fighting the Prophet. And they rejected his message, except a few who embraced the religion of Islam. So we see that the Jewish people, they came to Arabia in that time, in that era, fleeing the persecution and waiting for the messenger of God. Now Mecca was very important at that time. Why? Because it housed the Kaaba, the symbolic house of God. Who was the one who built the Kaaba? Adam salam. Ibrahim rebuilt it and he called the people to do the Hajj. So Mecca was an important economic and religious center. All these p- pilgrims would flock to Mecca to do their pilgrimage. Even the non-Arabs, Hindus would come and they would do the Hajj in Mecca. Yes, they would consider the Kaaba holy. There's a story to it. The, some Persians would come. Some people from you know, uh, Eastern Rome would come. So it was an important financial and religious center. And the Arabs loved Mecca. Why? Because they made money. It gave them prestige. It gave them religious uh, prominence.
1: So then I have a, uh, a question. As people would do pilgrimage, uh, before Islam, there wasn't Hajj like we have right now. Some would hold those statues and hold their idols. What about for the people that were from uh, the, like, that were living there, was this for everybody who, who did this? Was this like a common
0: practice? So the Hajj in Arabia was a common practice that nearly all Arab tribes would come to the Hajj and they would do the Hajj, each tribe in their own way, of course. But they had adulterated the Hajj. They had changed it, corrupted it. Um, They would, you know, come seek the blessings of their idols. Some of their women would come naked going around the Kaaba. So each tribe had their own rituals. But the idea of the Hajj, that you come to the house of God and you worship God. Now they worshiped God and the idols. They ascribed partners to God. They worshiped the idols and they also worshiped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Arabs, by the way, they believed in Allah. But what they did is they just added idols and they worshiped the idols as well. So yes, the pilgrimage did exist, but not the same hajj that Prophet Ibrahim called to. They had changed it throughout the centuries and throughout the ages. So Mecca was very prominent. It was a very important city. And uh, they came to do the hajj in the city of Mecca. Now what happened is, and we'll conclude with this, some regional areas at the time, they grew jealous of Mecca. All these tribes, they're going to Mecca. And when you go to the hajj, you spend money, right? So they realized, you know what, let's make our own Kaaba. There was a king, a ruler in Yemen, south of Mecca, by the name of Abraha. Abraha was a Christian ruler who was dispatched by the Roman Christian emperor because the Christians were persecuted in Yemen. In a long story, he became the ruler. Najashi, the just ruler of Abyssinia, had asked Abraha to go to Yemen to save the Christians. He did that but then he took power and then he started his own persecution. Abraha realized these Arabs, backward Arabs, they have this Kaaba. Why don't I make something fancier than the Kaaba? So he built the fanciest, most beautiful house of worship in Yemen which was supposed to compete with the Kaaba. Ah uh, no, it's been dis- destroyed and demolished. So he created that and he invited all nations come and do hajj here. People didn't listen to him. Post people were still going to Mecca, to that humble looking Kaaba, and they would just do the Hajj there. He got really upset. But then what really, you know, caused him to explode was that some silly Arabs they went into that temple that he made, and they desecrated it. Some hadith say they burned it, burned some places of it. Some say they defecated in it. Abraham became furious. He's like, you do that to my house of worship, I'm going to destroy the Kaaba. So he mobilizes a huge army towards Mecca, and he brings elephants with him as well. Remember, his origin was... Uh, he, he came through Abyssinia, so he probably brought those you know, big African elephants, and they marched towards Mecca. A messenger came to Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet. This was before the Prophet was born. He came to Abdul Muttalib, and he told him, look, Abraha has mobilized a huge army, and they're coming to Mecca to destroy the Kaaba. Just know that. Abdul Muttalib, He meets Najashi and also Abraha, and he makes one request. Because what he did, Abraha, he had sent some of his uh, army members, they went and they looted the people of Mecca. They looted their camels, their precious belongings. Abdul Muttalib had 200 camels. Remember, one camel back then was very expensive. It was very expensive. So 200 camels is like everything that Bani Hashim literally owned. Abdul Muttalib goes to the king and he complains. They tell him, what's your complaint? They thought he's here to negotiate, you know, don't desecrate the Kaaba, this is the house of God. He didn't mention the Kaaba. He told them, I'm here, give me my 200 camels back. Abraha, according to one historical account, he's like, I had respect for you, Abdul Muttalib. You know, I've heard about you, even looking at your glorious face, I had a lot of respect for you. But now that you came and you asked for your camels and you didn't even tell me to not destroy the Kaaba, I've changed my opinion on you. What did Abdul Muttalib tell him? He made his famous statement. He told him, I am the Lord or the owner of the camel and the Kaaba, the house has its own Lord. Abdul Muttalib was inspired by Allah. Now, we know whether through divine inspiration, through revelation, he was inspired by God, that God will protect the Kaaba. Don't do anything. God will protect the Kaaba. So his army marches towards Mecca with those elephants. Abdul Muttalib told the people of Mecca, Go and hide. Let's go in these valleys and mountains and hide, and let's see what happens. As they go into those valleys and caves and they're hiding, the army of Abraha is now reaching the Kaaba. The people of Mecca, they see a black cloud coming. They tell Abdul Muttalib, this black ominous cloud is coming. He's like, okay, that's a good sign. Allah is responding. So when those soldiers gather, it turns out that this black cloud was not a cloud. It was small birds. Called Ababil in Arabic. Small birds, each one carrying three stones. Two with its claws and one with its beak. Two, three stones. Tens or hundreds of thousands of them came and they rained down these stones on Abraha and the elephants and the soldiers. Now, the elephants, the, the, the hadith says, they refused to go to Mecca. Abraha would push them, they would refuse. But when he would f- turn them towards Yemen, they would quickly want to move. Subhanallah. Even the elephants you know, knew something was going to happen. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decimated them. And we have Surah Al-Feel. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. أَلَمْ fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al Do you not see what your Lord did with the people of the elephant? And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in this short chapter how he destroyed them. So... This year was so significant, it was such a big victory for the family of Bani Hashim, for the Arabs who wanted to to defend the Kaaba, that it was known to be Amil feel the year of the elephant. Because remember back then they didn't have calendars, you know, year so and so. They did not have years uh, for them to document their events, they would go by major events. So that year came to be known as the year of the elephant. And that was the year that the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was born. Allahumma salli we'll continue next week and we'll delve into the Prophet's life. He was born in Amil after this incident.